have you here. I guess I haven't said this yet. Happy Thanksgiving. I mean, it's, uh, I'm excited to be joining you today. I'm always excited to get a chance to share. Um, and Thanksgiving is no exception. And if you don't know me, my name's Gary. I just fill in from time to time. But uh, always, always excited to get a chance to, to speak with you guys. And I don't know about you, but Thanksgiving is right up there for me for, for favorite holidays. Uh, you know, Christmas is probably one, but I just love Thanksgiving. I love this time of year. And mostly I love turkey. Uh, I'm just one of those people who I don't understand why people don't have turkey more than twice a year. It's uh, something we have a lot at our house. And uh, I was out shopping for a turkey this week, and I was getting very discouraged because it seems like big turkeys are not available this year. Everywhere I went, they had these small little turkeys, and I'm like, I don't want to cook two turkeys, but I, I want more than this. And so I was at the store on, I think it was Thursday, I still haven't found a turkey. I'm at the store on Thursday, and I, I see one of those big bunkers, you know, those big frozen bunkers of, of turkeys. I'm like, okay, here we go. And there's a big sign, you know, only touch what you're going to buy. And I ignored that. I just climbed right in. I'm digging around. I'm trying to find a nice big turkey and nothing. They're all like eight, nine pounds. I mean, to me, that's just a big chicken. I mean, I kept looking, and I see another bunker a little further down. So I go down, and I look in there, and they're a bit bigger, but they're really not big turkeys. And I'm, I'm just... I'm discouraged. I'm thinking, like, what am I going to do? Do I buy two? Do I buy three? I don't know what to do. But then I saw the guy come from the back. The guy who works here, he comes out, and I'm like, oh, I'll ask him. So he's like, excuse me, but do these turkeys get any bigger? He just looked at me for a second. He says, well, no, they're dead. And so I ended up with two smaller turkeys. But I know that's a bad joke. I've been trying out Thanksgiving jokes all week on my kids, and finally they just said, enough. We can't take anymore. You have to stop. And I said, well, it's hard for me to quit. You know, cold turkey. But uh, it's, uh, it's a great time of year, and I'm just glad to be able to share with you. And last time we talked, last time we spoke, we talked about how following Jesus might just be the beginning of a relationship with him. That people who choose to follow may just find themselves not just following an ideal, but following a man and following a person that they can actually form a relationship with. And this all came from a Bible study that I did with a number of us, um, a Zoom study we did called Follow back in the spring. And it was, it was a really good study, and I think most of us enjoyed the seven weeks. But for me, it's something I'm still kind of playing around with in my head, and it's something that's really uh, caused a lot of reflection in my life. And I think back about kind of my walk with Jesus, and the study's done a lot to kind of change that. But it really focused on the simple idea that following Jesus comes first. And it was really all about becoming a lifelong follower of Jesus. And it asked this simple question, how can you believe in or put your trust in someone that you don't even know? And so it asked that question, and it really, it really came down to this idea that Jesus came to simplify things. He came to make God known to us. And, that, and that's simply because the God of the Old Testament often seemed very far away. I mean, chances were if you lived during the Old Testament times, you didn't know God. At most, maybe you knew somebody who knew God, or most, most likely, you just knew of somebody who knew God. I mean, you knew that Abraham knew God, talked with him, spoke with him, spent time with him, but you didn't know Abraham, and you didn't know God, but you could, you could read about what Abraham might say. Or there was Moses. Moses spoke with God. Moses knew God, but you didn't know Moses. You just knew of Moses. You know, same thing with David and all of the prophets, Samuel, Jonah, Jeremiah, all of the prophets, they knew God, but you didn't. You just had a chance to learn what God was like. And, uh, and as I said, Jesus came to simplify things. Jesus came to make God known to us. And we talked about this a little bit last time, but uh, uh, reading in the, in the Gospel of John this week, and, uh, and I don't know about you, I don't know if you have a favorite disciple. 
Um, I don't know if you're allowed to have a favorite disciple. I mean, you, you can't pick Judas, but besides that, you can pick somebody and say, that's the guy I relate to. That's the guy I like. That's the guy I like to read. And for me, that's John. I love John as a disciple. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think there's three reasons for it. The first of all, he has a very quirky sense of humor. If you read the Gospel of John and you kind of slow down, you realize that he's, he's kind of a strange guy that way. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. John decided that he wanted to give himself a nickname. And does anybody know what that was? His nickname he gave himself was the one that Jesus loves. Can you imagine trying that out on the other disciples and saying, hey, I want you guys to start calling me the one that Jesus loves. I'm sure that went over really well. And in fact, John uses that nickname on himself four times in his gospel. It's not recorded anywhere else in the scriptures at all. So that was just John's own nickname that he used. And uh, I, I kind of like that. But he did have a nickname that actually we know that Jesus I don't, we don't know if Jesus gave him the nickname, but Jesus actually used a nickname for John, and actually it was John and James. Jesus once called them the Sons of Thunder. Now, that's a pretty cool nickname, especially if Jesus gave it to you, the Sons of Thunder. And it, I, we don't know for sure, but it most likely came from a story we read in Luke chapter 9, where we see that Jesus and his disciples, they're heading towards Jerusalem, and they're passing through a small little village um, a Sumerian village on the way to Jerusalem. And, and as was the custom, Jesus sends a couple of his guys ahead of time and says, you know, make preparations, which sounds really fancy, but basically find us somewhere to stay, find us some food to eat. That way, when we arrive, we'll be able to stay overnight. Next morning, they're on their way. They'll keep going. And of course, so some disciples went into the town. They got a pretty cold reception. The Sumerians said, we're not interested. You know, Jews and Sumerians did not get along back then. So they said, we're not interested. You guys should find somewhere else to stay. So the disciples came back and told Jesus this. And James and John, they come running over and they say, hey, Jesus, if you want, we'll pray to God and we'll have him rain down fire on those people and burn them up. I'm not making this up. This is in, the, this is in Luke chapter 9. Do you imagine these two guys thinking, first of all, that Jesus might say yes to that? Like Jesus might be like, okay, yeah, that seems like a good idea. They should have given us somewhere to stay. I think that seems fair. Or even more amazing to think, could you imagine that James and John thought that they had a better connection with God? They're like, God, Jesus, we can do this favor for you because we know God. We'll pray to him and he'll rain down fire. It's hard to imagine. But uh, the third reason I think you have to like John is that Jesus chose him, of everybody Jesus knew, uh, Jesus chose John to be the one who took care of his mother after he was gone. And that, I mean, how much would you have to value someone? How much would you have to trust someone? How much would you have to uh, just be friends with someone to make that decision to say, John, I want you to take care of my mom after I leave? It's an amazing thought. And I mean, you know, you might leave your mother-in-law to the Romans, but, you know, your own mom... You're picking out John, right? Because John's that trustworthy guy. So that's why I like John anyway. But last time, the key thing about John is this. He wrote his gospel years after the fact. And that, why that's important is this isn't a travel journal. And this isn't a research kind of a historical document like what Luke wrote. He had a chance to think about what he wanted to write in the context of what did he hope that people would gain by reading it. And so John actually tells us that when he wrote his gospel, he wrote it so that people would read it and believe. And so I think it's interesting to look at some of the words he used. And so since he, these are some of the most common words in his gospel. And the most common word that he used was the word no. 141 times in the little book of John, John used the word no. To be known by someone, to know someone, and also in a relational way for people to know each other. 
That was the most important concept he, he wrote about. The second was the word believe. 98 times he used the word believe in that short little gospel. And then the third one would be the word world. Not necessarily meaning the planet, but the idea of everybody. So, of course, John 3.16, God so loved the world. It doesn't mean the planet. It means all people. And so when you combine those things, he also said truth 50 times, which was a bit misleading because he often quoted Jesus who would say truly, truly, and that would count as two, uh, and also love and life. And so that's what John wanted to, to share with us, um, knowing that we generations to come would be reading this document that he wrote. He didn't know it would be called the Gospel of John, I'm sure, but he wrote this so that people in the future would read it, and it was his hope that they would believe because of it. And so last time I spoke, we looked at this verse, John 1.18, and it says this, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. And like I said, we shared that last time, and, and it, it's such an important idea that we looked at some other translations, and we learned that this idea, revealed God, was also, it was also shared as shown us who God is or made God known to us. They all meant the same thing that we would know God, not just know of God. But here's the thing I didn't share with you last time, the verse that comes right before it. So the verse that comes before John 1.18 is John 1.17, very good. Uh, it says this, For the law was given through Moses, and God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Let's read them together because he wrote them together. For the law was given through Moses, and God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. But no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, so that's Jesus, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. John, looking back, was able to put those ideas together. And, so what he's, and that's our jumping off point for this week and what John wrote. He said, Jesus is God. He said more Jesus is love, and he came to save, but he also came to build relationships so that we would know our Heavenly Father, not just know of him. And this is new because, as I said, many people in the Old Testament times didn't know God. And even if you thought you knew God, so often they misunderstood who God was. And I'll give you an example. There's a, there was a common Old Testament belief that if someone had some sort of affliction, that meant they were being punished for something they'd done. And so we have the example in John 9. It says this, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin or because of his parents' sin? There was no other option they thought would fit. They said either this man's parents were such terrible people that God struck him blind, or he, before he was even born, had done something so terrible he was struck blind. That's the only two thoughts they had. And what Jesus came to say was, no, 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 you're getting this wrong. That's not how it works. But this is so key. He doesn't just tell them. This is, not, this is not right, and correct them. Through his life, Jesus showed them. Jesus showed them exactly how God sees people who sin. Let's take a look at the story, for example, of the adulterous woman. We know that story. She's caught, and she's, she's be, being put on trial, basically, in the town square, and people are, uh, are, are trying to suggest to Jesus that we should stone her. We should put her to death for her sin. Well, if, if that's true, that God punishes those sinners then wouldn't Jesus arrive and either lead the charge and have that woman stoned or maybe strike her blind or give her some sort of affliction, maybe, maybe give her some leprosy so that she could think about what she'd done? Can you imagine if that's the story we would read? 
Of course, we can't, even, we can't even fathom that idea because it's not how God works. It's not how Jesus worked. And that's why Jesus said, I didn't just come to tell you how things are. I've come to show you. That's how God sees sinner. What did Jesus do? He didn't condemn her. He forgave her, and he encouraged her to go on and sin no more. That's how God sees the sinner, not as someone who needs to be punished. And it, it's so important, too, that uh, we, well, I should finish the story, of course. Jesus not only corrected his disciples, but he healed that man of his blindness on the spot. And, when they, and to answer the question, why, would, why was that man blind? He simply said, maybe it's because the power of God, well, I wanted to put the power of God on display for all to see. That's how God sees us. Not as sinners who need to be punished, but as people who need to be saved. And here's the idea. If, if you choose to follow Jesus... As God reveals himself to you, you'll come to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And that word, I think, believe, is a little problematic because we typically don't use the word believe in the same way now as they meant when they wrote this. And I'll give you an example. And this is an example probably every Sunday school teacher and youth leader has done at one point or another, the example of believing in a chair. So if I just simply ask you, is this a chair, your answer would be, Yes. None of you had to Google it, right? You just knew. It's, it's basically a chair. So I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't pay super good attention today. I did last night, though. But I'm assuming no, none of you came in today and said, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe this will be okay. Okay. Most of you just came in and flopped yourself down on the chair, right? Because you have a belief that the chair will hold your weight, that the chair will do its job. Well, I have a quick question for you. I made a chair. It's pretty, that's, it's fine. That's, that's not part of the structural integrity of the chair here. But I made this chair. And my guess is this. If I had replaced all 200 chairs in this church, and again, Mark, if you're interested, uh, give me a call. I'll, I'll write you up a quote. But uh, if I replaced all of the chairs this week with one of these bad boys, I think your response would have been different. But the, I mean, this is a good chair. Don't, don't let it fool you. This, uh, this fence board here, this is actually for lumbar support. It's extremely good for your posture. You can sit nice and straight. It's good for your back. Uh, I thought I'd make it a little nicer, um, so I put some fabric down on the seat part. It's actually a T-shirt that I spilled chili on, but I just turned it inside out and, uh, and kind of attached it there. It's meant to recline because, let's face it, with Mark preaching, we'd all like to be able to recline and get a little shut-eye, but... Um, um, you know, in general, it doesn't recline, but it kind of, kind of wiggles. But here's the thing. If you'd walked in today and found that at your table, I think many of you would have been, I, I really don't know. I, I'm not too, I'm not, I'm not at risk it, but you, don't, you wouldn't have faith in that chair. And you simply wouldn't have faith in that chair because you don't know that chair. That chair is so radically different than any chair you've sat on. You would have to come to believe that that chair would support your weight. Because what I would suggest to you is if I did replace all 200 chairs at Kingsway with those, and I can make little ones for kids' ministry, that's fine. But, it, but if I did that, and week after week, that's the only chair you had to sit on, well, you probably stopped coming. But if you kept coming, eventually, you'd start sitting on these chairs, and eventually, you'd start to learn that they're actually extremely stable and extremely well-built. And I'm, I'm rather proud of it, to be honest. And uh, eventually, you'd come to the point where you're like, I, I can believe in that chair. I believe I will come to church and I will sit down and I will not get injured. You probably will. I'm just noticing there's some screws sticking out the back. So be careful if you do come in next week and the chairs have been replaced. But that's how trust works. That's how a belief in something works. It proves itself 
to be worthy. Uh, I'll give you a good example. In John 6, um, Jesus is delivering a, a sermon to a huge crowd of people. And those people in that crowd, uh, the scripture is very clear, are disciples. I think sometimes we think there were 12 disciples. Well, there, there were 12 kind of inner circle disciples, if you will. But there were crowds of hundreds, maybe even thousands of people who were Jesus' disciples. They followed him wherever he went. I think sometimes we think Jesus went to different crowds, almost like a band that books out different venues. No, wherever Jesus went, crowds followed him because they wanted to learn from him. And so as he was delivering a a message to these crowds, a lot of people were not liking what they were hearing. He was actually just, he was giving an illustration about how his body is like the bread of life and how his blood is like wine. And people actually thought he was talking about cannibalism. They thought he was suggesting that uh, they would have to eat his body, literally. Uh, of course, he wasn't saying that, but that's what they thought. And people are saying, like, this is, no, we can't, we can't accept this. And the crowd just starts to dissipate. The people who had been following Jesus for weeks, months, just started to dissipate. They all started to leave. And of course, uh, I'm so glad you guys stayed, but I imagine it would be pretty hard to watch the people who said they're going to follow you walk away. And at that moment, Jesus looks over to the 12, to his 12 disciples that he, he lived life with, he lived so closely with, and he just looked at them and he says, do you want to leave too? And I actually don't believe he said that as a confrontational thing. I think he said that, I think he said that based on some hurt that he felt as he watched all of these people walk away. Are you guys going to leave too? And then Peter replied this. He said, Lord, where would we go? And then he says this, and this is okay. We have come to believe. In other words, we have come to trust and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Those disciples had come to believe because they lived with Jesus, they learned from Jesus, and at some point they came to the point where they believed that Jesus was who he says he is. And it's such an important moment because for Jesus, we remember that none of these disciples believed before they followed. When, and we talked about this in the summer. We had a series of videos. I won't go ahead and do it again, but we talked about that. As Jesus called people, they didn't follow because they said, oh, the Son of God just asked me to join in. They followed because they were interested enough to know who this man was. None of them believed when they chose to follow. They chose to follow first. And then as God revealed his true nature, as he revealed himself to them, they came to believe. And, uh, and a great example of someone who is the exception to the rule, I think, um, because we know that some, some of these disciples took years. John himself says it was three years later that he truly believed. But someone who did it much more quickly would be Paul. And we know that Paul was basically the opposite of a Jesus follower. He was following Jesus' disciples around, hoping to arrest or kill them. He, he believed they were so off the mark that they were, they were a plague to their society and to their religion He was trying to arrest them and take them back in chains. And so it's amazing to think that Paul wrote the piece of scripture we're about to look at. And so Paul wrote this in the book of Romans in chapter 3. It says this, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. 
He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Now, I didn't hear it, but I expected to hear an audible gasp from all of you when I said, apart from the law, because that was truly shocking. Because until this moment, that's all that there was. There was the law. We're going to talk about the law in a minute here. But I think for many of us, or for me at least, I still struggle with that idea because that's what obeyers believe. Obeyers really believe, and we talked about this last time, but they really believe this idea that I'm bringing something to the table, that Jesus and God will accept me because of what I'm doing. Look how obedient I've been. Look how good a job I did this week. Look how much I gave to the church. Look how often I go to the church. It's this idea that I am somehow earning something. And Jesus is about to correct that, or I should say Paul's about to correct that. But I want you to notice, if we just look at that piece of scripture I read, if we just kind of, you know, you probably can't see it, but I just want you to notice how often and how consistent this expression, being made right with him, really is. It appears four times just in that short piece of scripture, this idea we're made right with him, we're made right in his sight, we're made right with God. And really that expression, this is where you hear the word righteousness. It just means being made right. And this is where it comes from. And, And really what we're saying is like, God, I know there's been conflict between you and me. It's my fault, but I know now that we're good. And I know that there's been some distance between us. I keep pushing you away, but I know that right now, And from now on, we're good. And I know that I've been avoiding you in the past. I've maybe been trying to keep away from you in the past, even knowing you've never uh, abandoned me. But I know that right now and from now on, we're good. I mean, this is is new and this is big, and this is amazing because it's Paul writing it. Paul would have arrested somebody for saying that just a few uh, years prior to him writing this. And Paul says that the law and the prophets told us this was going to happen. It's all throughout Old Testament scripture, but people didn't believe and they didn't understand. And I think to a certain extent, they just never saw it. They never realized that this change was coming, although the Old Testament points to it constantly. Because the law, as as the Old Testament law, what we need to understand is that was basically a standard or a sign pointing to what being right with God looked like. And what we know is that people couldn't achieve it. They tried, but they couldn't. And of course, what happened was the law started to expand and get bigger, and they started to add to it, trying so desperately to be able to, to do what the law asked them. But in verse 22, what we read was this. If it's not the law, then what is it? If we abandon the idea that it's the law, something that we do, what is it? And what we find it is, it's simply placing our faith and Jesus Christ, and it's for all who believe. And this is so huge because it's not just passing the torch to the next person. It's not Abraham to Moses to David, and now it's Jesus' turn. It's quite the opposite. It's a whole new concept, and it's this idea that the old sacrificial system, the old version where you would, you would burn sacrifices to make yourself temporarily right with God, that, this wasn't being adjusted. It was being thrown out. God was saying that's not how we're going to do it anymore. And because what we read in verse 23 when it says all have sinned, we all read that and we all kind of like just nod our head and we know that. But really in the Old Testament, it was really about a ranking system. It was this idea that, that you know, you, you could get a kind of a score almost. You know what? Where am I with God right now? Where am I with following all of the laws and the rules? You know, I'm a 7 out of 10. I'm pretty good. I'm going to go make a sacrifice though. And I'm going to go make a sacrifice and that's going to bump me back up temporarily. 
to a 10 out of 10. I'm going to be right with God for a moment. And then I'm going to go back to living my life the way, the way I do. And, and really the idea of it being a ranking system is, is, is misleading because really what it is is simply saying that I have failed. Can you say that with me? I have failed. I think some of you guys said you have failed. That's not the point. But I get it. I get it. I have failed. It doesn't matter if I'm a 1 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10. It doesn't matter if I did A, B, but I didn't do C, or if you're the guy who's like, yeah, I'm a D, all of the above. It doesn't really matter. There was a system in place that would make you right with God. And, it, and it's, such, an, it's, it's such, such a hard system for us to understand, but the heart of it was this, that you would do something. You would bring something to God to make it right. And I mean, just, just imagine that every week when you come to church, you just bring your groceries with you, Right? Oh, I better not put it on that chair here, on this chair. And, you know, and I'd, be, I'd be like, everybody would be there, and I'd be like, you know what, I had a great week. I had a great week. All, all I'm going to do this week is throw some goldfish in the fire. I'm now going to be right with God. And I know I'll be back. But for now, I've made my sacrifice. I'm right with God. But then there'd be the next guy who comes in, of course, and he's like, you know what, Sunday was great. I had a great Sunday. Monday, my boss starts yapping at me, and I said some things I probably shouldn't have, so I probably better throw a... Throw a a few more things in there for Monday, but then on Tuesday, Tuesday I get an argument with my wife, and I, I definitely said some things I shouldn't have said to her, um, and most of the things I said to her were about her mother, so I probably owe some more stuff in here. Um, you know, I yelled at my kids. They kind of deserved it, but I get it. You know, I got, I got to be better than that, and you just, just kind of make a sacrifice, and making that sacrifice would make you right with God, and of course, then there'd be, you know, uh, Friday, went out for drinks after work, and, and you know what? Things, things just got stupid, and I, I just... But now I'm right with God. I've, I've done my part. I've done what I need to do. Now I'm right with God. And my week continues, and I come back, I come back as often as I need to. And, of course, that's, that's not a literal interpretation. You know, it's very complicated to talk about. A sin sacrifice had to, be, uh, had to be an animal, basically, because it was this idea of blood being paid. But the idea was simple, that you had to do something to make yourself right with God. And that's why it's so difficult for, for some people to wrap their head around this idea that that, that action was, was, was justifying me. It's a big word. It goes, it goes along nicely. If you think of righteous as being made right, justification or being justified is the action word. So how do you become right? How do you get made right? Well, you have to be justified. And so when Paul writes about that, when he, he writes about that, he says, this is how you used to be justified. There used to be a system, and we're not, we're, not, we're not adapting that system. We're throwing that out. He says, and then in verse 24, he simply says this. He says, we need to be justified, and we are justified through Jesus Christ. And what do we know about that justification? It's free. It's God's gift to us, grace freely made right in his sight, that we no longer have any role in producing salvation for ourselves. We no longer have any role in being made right with God. It is all God's doing. Thank you, Father. Thank you for that. You're absolutely right. This is, this is the new system that Jesus established. And it's so important because Old Testament law says this, you sin, you sacrifice, you earn forgiveness. And many people have, have, have moved that into the modern generation. They say, listen, when you sin, you earn it back through obedience and good works and, and church attendance, and you can earn that forgiveness. But with Jesus, he says quite simply, if you believe in me, if you put your trust in me, you will be given forgiveness. You can't earn it. 
And, and God didn't change the standard. Sin is still sin. Sin is still something that God cannot tolerate, but he created a plan, a plan for each of us and all of us, the world, if you will, that says, that says there's a way in which you can be made right, and it's nothing you will do. It's something I will do, and it's something my son will do on your behalf. And, and just, uh, we're running along here, so just to kind of jump ahead, I just want to show you the end of that section. We're actually skipping a few verses. Um, you can go back and check them if you like, but if we can jump ahead to Romans 27, we can just simply read this. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. And verse 28, so key. So we are made right. There it is again. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. And for so many of us today, I think many of us understand that we're not held accountable by the Old Testament law of sacrifice. I think we know that, but then I wonder, do we? Do we just replace burnt offerings with something else that we bring God instead and we just simply say, God, I'm going to do this. I'll do this if you'll do that. We negotiate with God. We try, to, we try to set up a system just like the sacrifice system so we can make things right. I think it's just in our human nature, but God says, I don't need any of that from you. He says, it's simply your faith and your belief in my son is all that's required. And I mean, there is a role for obedience, and we'll talk about that next time. Um, there is a role for obedience, but it has nothing to do with God accepting you. It has nothing to do with your salvation and your connection with your Lord, your relationship that he's come to create, because God's our creator. He designed us. He knows how, how we work. He knows what's best for us, even when we can't see it. And so I just simply say, don't fear letting God be in charge. Don't fear letting God change you, because that's the plan he put in place. Not that you would simply be forgiven, and then just your life would just continue on the same way. He wants more for you. He wants to see you in a situation where you can come to become more like his son each and every day. And, and I understand why people struggle with it. I mean, look how thick your Bible is. Look how thick your Bible is. I understand that. But as long as they're just rules, as long as they're just things that you're supposed to do or not supposed to do, you're going to struggle with them. And so I don't have a challenge for, each, for, for you this week. I really don't have a challenge. But I would say this. I think there's something here for everyone. If you're new to all this, if you're kind of just beginning uh, checking church out, you're not really sure what you think of all this, can I just let you know that you should put no pressure on yourself to believe anything. You should simply choose to follow, that I'm going to come alongside Jesus. I'm going to learn from him. I'm going to read the gospels. I'm going to pray, even if I'm not sure if anyone's listening. I'll pray to this God. I'm going to learn from people people like the Kingsway people here who maybe have been doing this for a while, I'm going to learn from them. I'm going to understand from them what it means to be a Christian because if you follow Jesus, you will be brought to the point of belief. God will do that for you. It's nothing that we do, nothing that the pastor at the front does, nothing that anybody can do. God reveals himself to you. Some, there was an email this week that came out, and I almost missed it because it was at the very bottom, but it was from, uh, from Jennifer, and she talked about a security guard in her building. Who, uh, who suddenly has taken a very keen interest in who this Jesus person is. And he's been reading his New Testament when he has time at the, on his job site. And I just thought, you know, that's exactly it. He's following Jesus. He's not made some huge commitment. He's not figured out who Jesus is, but he's willing to learn. He's willing to follow, to find out. And I would say for some of you who this is not new to, but maybe you feel a little bit like you're not following, 
Maybe you were following, you feel like maybe you've stopped and, and, and Jesus has continued on without you. You're feeling some distance. Can I just remind you that Jesus won't leave without you? You can rededicate yourself to being a follower no matter where you find yourself. You find yourself in a situation where you don't feel close to God. It may just be that you've stopped following. You've not, you're not spending the time reading. You're not spending the time worshiping. You're not spending the time praying. And can I just encourage you that it doesn't matter that you've, you've taken a step back that you can continue and choose to follow as of right now. And if you're not new to this and you feel like you have that close relationship to God, you feel like you, you, you have that in your life, can I just encourage you that when Jesus talks about going out into the world and making disciples, he's really directing that at you, that you are a leader, that people look at you as a leader, people who know you and know your heart for the Lord look to you as a leader. Can I, can I encourage you to expand that? to start talking to people about what God's done in your life, be an example for them, because that's what followers crave. Followers crave an understanding of who God is. You can be the person, not that wins them to Christ, not that, not, not that simply just reminds them of things in the Bible, but personalizes it for them and says, here's what God's done in my life. I look forward to seeing what he's going to do in yours. Let's just take a minute to pray. Lord, just so thankful just so thankful to be able to see that I, I believe, Lord, that Jesus, you are my Savior. I believe that I've been made righteous by your sacrifice, not by anything that I've done. I crave relationship with you, and I believe that you crave a relationship with me. I believe that you care about the things that I care about, and that's, that's such an intimate thing to be able to say about the God of all creation. So thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you that I'm saved but thank you that you've chosen a relationship with me, a relationship that you want to go on for eternity. You know, I'm going to say no to the rules and the lists and all of the things that distance me from you, and I'm just going to simply say yes to you, Jesus. Will I be a fo- Can I just dedicate myself to be a follower of yours and say, where you lead, Lord, I'm going to choose to go. And for, for those who haven't uh, come to that moment of belief, Lord, um, just... There shouldn't be any pressure to become a believer. If you're a follower, we know, Lord, that you are faithful. You will reveal yourself to people, and they will come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Thank you for your, your love in our lives. Thank you for a, a, a weekend like Thanksgiving where we can actually take the time and, uh, and kind of normalize this idea of being thankful. And, Lord, I just pray that we would continue to be thankful for all you've done well beyond this week. Love you, Lord. Just love you so much and so thankful for what you've done in my life. Just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.